today we are speaking with Dr. Nelson Okoshenkin, OBE, the CEO of the International Federation of Consulting Engineers, otherwise known as FIDIC. FIDIC is the global representative body for national associations of consulting engineers and represents over 1 million engineers, 40,000 firms in over 100 countries. They are also responsible for the FIDIC suite of construction engineering contracts, with which many of the listeners to this podcast will be very familiar. Dr. Okoshankin is also a board member and chair of the Crossrail Investment Committee at Transport for London. Dr. Okoshankin, welcome and thank you for agreeing to speak with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, James. Thank you very much for your invite. So you're obviously a very prominent and active participant in the construction engineering industry, and you've also been appointed to a number of very high-level executive level positions. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to take up these positions and what motivated you to do so? Well, put it this way, they always say that everybody learns something from their parent. My father happens to be an engineer, uh, and I was once told when I was little, as long as people leave, they need a shelter, they need transport, they need system. So I followed my father's footsteps, and uh, I became a civil engineer, and started my career in the days with Tarmac as a contractor, and worked my way through the system all over the world as an engineer, project manager, and deliver a lot of projects, but ultimately came back to UK, which is home for me, and continue in the capacity as a consultant. Uh, and having worked with like of WSP, uh, High Point Render as a PLC and a board director, it's natural at a point in time you ask the question, how many more bridges can you build? How many more airports can you build? Uh, so when the opportunity came up uh, to represent the industry, I took it up, and I thought, if I cannot be Thomas Telford and I cannot be Brunel, I can't be the voice for the construction industry. And that's why I took up the role in ACA. And it's been fantastic uh, coming into that journey. But in that process, I've always been involved with big projects in Hong Kong airport, you know, in Libya, in South Africa, in different parts of the world. So it makes practical sense that I continue. One of the interesting things you will find out if you go through my background is the fact that I'm not just an engineer. I also train to be uh, a qualified arbitrator and a mediator and adjudicator. Uh, and this is benefit of working for the like of Hypo and Rendo, where we dealt with a lot of dispute all over the world. So by the time I came into ACE, I was all-rounder, and it makes sense that I should be able to uh, move ultimately into FIDIC. And in between that, I still sit as the chair of investment committee of a fund in Africa. Uh, I'm currently on the TFL board, as you said at the beginning, and responsible for you know program and investment committee. And I'm also just come off on the Crossrail, uh, where I've been the chair of the investment committee, which is a big project, so say the least. Uh, it's been an interesting journey, uh, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, but I suspect at a point in time, you ask, how much can you do on projects and national, and now I'm at the global level. And FIDIC is like UN for the whole of the engineering community, uh, and it serves the community all over the world, as you correctly said. And, and I'm, I see it as a challenge. And it's good to have a UK person running FIDIC. Thank you. Now, just pausing for a moment on your role with FIDIC. Obviously, FIDIC as an organisation is uh, an engineer's organisation for engineers. But the FIDIC suite of contracts, of course, is drafted by engineers, for engineers, building uh, and, and doing engineering works on major projects. But, of course, it also crosses over into the legal sphere. And I just wondered how you found that working with engineers and lawyers together? How have you found that interaction? James, it's a very good question. I mean, I suspect, you know, if you go back to the root of FIDIC, 
in the sense that, you know, FIDICARE was really about promoting the best in classes, standard of delivery. Uh, and we have three golden approach that we've taken the pillar. One is about the quality of the design. Uh, the second is about sustainability of whatever we do. And the third one is about integrity and transparency. But if you look at the concept of the quality, it means it's not just the quality of the engineering, but the quality of the delivery and the procurement and the execution of the project. So it makes practical sense. Uh, if you start from the genesis of the old resident engineer, have to be the person who acts on behalf of the client, and therefore the contract have to be drafted in a way that enable all supply chain uh, to be involved with the project from end to end. But ultimately, I think the key point is always about um, making it fair for all parties and ensuring that at least you know, the contract is delivered in the most efficient way. So from that point of view, I think it's natural that you know engineers sees that a role is to help the client in delivering, but also they have this independent, uh, you know, what I call you know, um, a balanced individual uh, to make sure that you know all parties to the contract are dealt with in a fair and a balanced manner. So from that point of view, uh, it doesn't surprise me that FIDIC, you know, is very much in this area. But also, James, if you take the question back, um, yes, Philip is working with contract and producing contract, produced by engineer for engineer. But actually, when you look at the way the contracts are being produced, uh, it goes through a number of stringent approach that also require legal input. So when we produce our document through our contract committees, we have a number of people, including lawyers, who we call in for friendly review at different stages. And then at a certain point before our documents go out, we also invite lawyers who are eminent lawyers all over the world to give us legal perspective on legal interpretation of the contract to ensure that jurisdiction can be dealt with and the contract is fair and balanced. So I do not find it strange. Actually, I think it's a collaborative effort between the engineering industry and the legal industry, and both can coexist and work very well together. No, absolutely. I think that's right. Um, and I think, I mean, it, it, it almost goes without saying that because it's a, I mean, a FIDIC formal contract is a sophisticated document. It's a well thought through document. Um, it's a document that works when you, you read it. It's got, a, it's got a philosophy which makes sense. I'll leave Harith, um, who's a lot more experienced at, at drafting FIDIC uh, related contracts to, to sort of discuss that in more detail. But there's no doubt that um, it's well thought through uh, and it works in most cases on most projects. And you can see that by the popularity of the, of it, you know, and its use around the world. Um, for many people listening to us, they will be familiar with the FIDIC form. Um, but obviously, as I mentioned in the introduction, FIDIC is a lot about a lot more than just the forms of contract. And I think that may, may come as a surprise to some people who, who just see it as being uh, a form of contract. They don't realize that FIDIC may actually be doing many more things than that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about FIDIC's overall strategy and its objectives, uh, in particular over the last few years? Well, as you probably know, I came into FIDIC about two and a half years ago. Uh, we've just put a new strategic plan together. Uh, but strategic plan is not actually, you know, um, fundamentally different from what we started on, but we're making it relevant, we build on it. FIDIC is based on representing association around the world, as you correctly said at the beginning. 
And our priority really is always about those three pillars that I talked about, which is, you know, ensure that we encourage best practice in design, best practice in the way consulting operation work all over the world, and promoting, you know, good guidance on how people should deal with construction projects. And that's why the contract come out of that is really meant to be a guide on good practice. Uh, and that particular means that a lot of clients, James, look up to the Philly contract as a good benchmark and a good barometer of contract to be used around the world. So it's not surprising that because it's been successful, you find that most multilateral development bank, they fully adopted it. And particularly since I came in in the last 12 months, we've been able to secure seven multilateral development bank to fully adopt the whole rainbow suite. Uh, but when we talk to the bank, James, we really don't talk purely about the contract. We talked about the procurement of the banks. We talked about their investment pipeline. We talked about their principle and transparency. We talked about issue about sustainability and also issue about integrity. When you look at that all together, the conversation we have with the client and stakeholder is far, far more than just pure contract. But a lot of people, as you correctly said, James, tend to know Philic for the contract. Eh? So if you ask me to describe the Philic role, I would say the contract is one of the best practice documents that we put out, and the world have accepted that, and it's now become the benchmark across the world. So from that point of view, our engagement with government at different level is all about that area. For example, we are dealing with United Nations on sustainability development goals, we have our committees operating across different sectors. We're producing guidance notes and good practice, which our industry use and a lot of client endorse and some of the government entity and United Nations use it. So it gives us a quite a broad spectrum of activity that we do. So in conclusion, contract is one part. There's a bigger agenda uh, which cover you know issues about climate change, best practice in development, project management and integrity. So all those things are key items that we focus on, not just pure on contract. Um, Harith will ask, ask some questions about climate change. Interesting you mentioned that. I think yeah. Harith is going to ask some questions about climate change in a moment. I just wanted to focus before we do that on, on geographies. Um, and one thing I'm particularly interested in is where uh, the, the, the large where the large areas of growth are in the in the world in terms of infrastructure construction engineering works and we can we can look around the world over the last decade two decades uh, and it's fairly obvious about where there's been a lot of hot spots of construction to, you know in parts of asia the middle east uh increasingly latin america uh, and africa i mean looking forward where do you i mean where are you where are your focuses now i mean in terms of spreading the word uh, and, the, and the reach of FIDIC and, 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 as you say, spreading best practice in the industry, engineering industry. But James, there any particular you, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. What you find that is that um, we have two, excluding COVID, and now COVID is on top of it, uh, we have two type of, you know, development phase that most countries facing. You have the advanced countries, such as United Kingdom, United States, and all of that, uh, and Western Europe, and then you have emerging markets and some medium-time development. The way I see it at the moment is that there's a huge opportunity in Asia, and always in Asia, it's still a major area of growth across the GDP in Asia. Um, China, of course, internal market, 
when you look across the whole of Asia, there is a huge opportunity, you know, across Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Hong Kong is still very much growing. China it is, but it's a very, very close market, and that's a challenge, and I'll come back to talk about that. Uh, Middle East continues to grow, albeit it has its own challenges, uh, which is sort of, uh, you know, sort of instability in that particular area. Africa is on the low side, but it's actually got huge potential, and it's coming through. We then start to see what I call the Eastern Europe, which is an area that's grown. And that, I tend to look at that, what I call it as the sort of a primary infrastructure. What you find that in the West is that we see growth that is going to come through as a result of the COVID, uh, because most assets in the Western are very much fastly sell by date. And there's huge replenishment agenda that needs to come through. But then the question that comes through in terms of infrastructure, I define between social infrastructure and economic infrastructure. Uh, and if I can put it simply, the economic infrastructure are the airport, the road, the rail, the big infrastructure. And the social infrastructure are things like education, hospitals, you know, all those things are coming through that people need. And now that we have the issue of COVID, I suspect that there is a balance requirement. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether more people still want to work in the city or whether the big infrastructure is going to be 5G or possibly 6G because a lot of people are now working from home. And I also see that, you know, the decarbonization of the world is going to be a big driver. So the concept of net zero, i.e., you know the situation in the West, particularly in UK, we're looking at 2050 or net zero, with same agenda is going to come up in North America when Biden comes in. You see more solid, you know, activity coming on between the old ally and North America now that Trump is going to step down. So I do see uh, what I call replenishment of asset would be the big drive in the West and the Atlantic, and that will be driven by a green agenda, and the issue about net zero will be a big area to actually move through. In the emerging market, they're still building traditional you know, infrastructure, and that will continue to be. But actually, I think you know, one needs to be careful that we don't see the emerging market trying to catch up they may leapfrog us in the sense that you know some of them will not do things that we've done they will jump escape and they will build fantastic infrastructure that will be carbon driven i.e net carbon zero agenda or decarbonization or to look at new technology which we have looked at in the, in the west if we flip it back and start to look at the intervention james you then start to see who can make an impact in the emerging market this is where the multilateral development bank comes into it. So, for example, while the political stability may be happening in South America, you will find that Inter-American Development Bank, who have just adopted the contract, will be pumping billions and billions of money in Latin America, and that will be an area of growth. You see African Development Bank putting funds into both North and Sub-Saharan Africa, you see, the, like Islamic Development Bank are looking at all the Islamic speaking or the Arab speaking country as far as Indonesia to Saudi Arabia to Morocco, and that's going to be an opportunity. You see, the like of EBRD, European Bank for Development Reconstruction, which really was focusing on Eastern Europe. Now they will be looking at even the south, you know, um, what's called the southern part of Europe. They're also looking into, you know, them, Morocco and they're looking into sub-Saharan Africa because they now extend their operating country. So I see the role of the multilateral development bank will be a game changer. And the reason why it be a game changer is most government in the emerging market 
are looking for opportunity to bring capital into their country to be able to deliver this infrastructure. This bank can actually help to encourage foreign direct investment by being a good interventionist into the process and therefore change the game. And that's why we in Philip, you know, use the approach that we need to get all this multilateral development bank uh, to adopt Philip contract and therefore create a good environment for inward investment and co-financing on infrastructure in different parts of the world. What you're saying, I guess, is uh, it's it's all about making sure that the, the investors in these projects are comfortable with the political environment in which they're investing that money. That makes that, of course, that's that's fundamental. Um, and how FIDIC, FIDIC can help that situation by providing, you know, a a stable, well-known allocation of risks between investors, developers, and contractors, and 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 I guess you know international contractors are equally attracted to the fact that uh, it's a development bank using a FIDIC form of contract. I'm just going to pass over to Harith now. He's going to have a, he's got a couple of questions on climate change. Okay. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you, James. Uh, thank you, Nelson. Just just picking up on your work with the UN and what you said about net zero. Uh, as you may have heard, just yesterday, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres issued a stark warning uh, to our world leaders about the state of the planet and. He said, our planet is broken, and he urged every country, city, financial institution, and company to adopt plans for a transition to net zero emissions by 2050. So I think it's probably appropriate for me to ask you now, what, what role do you see FIDIC having in promoting uh, environmental sustainability in construction and engineering projects? Yeah. Well, Harry, let me just uh, start by reinforcing what I said earlier, that FIDIC's got three pillars. One is quality, second is sustainability, and the third one is integrity. And I can take and spend a whole day on each of them. <laughs> so if I pull off on the sustainability, as you probably know, just like we have contract committee that produce FIDIC contract suit, which we are now talking about, we have a dedicated team within FIDIC, which is called Sustainability Development Committee, that is looking at these 17 uh, sustainability development goals that the UN have set. And as you know, consultants, are in the front end of project definition and scoping and also advising clients on what project they need to and how they should design, deliver and run those assets. So it's intrinsically in our space to actually ensure that you know the design take board the idea of the next zero idea. Now people said you know how do we achieve this issue? Uh, there is an existing asset and there's a new build. And what we've done is that in our sustainability developing you know, group, uh, we are looking at you know, how do we take the seven, 17 sustainability development goal and interfere that in the consulting profession. So we look at every single slice of the goal and say what part of our work will interface to make sure we can actually take this agenda and build into a design solution. So we produce a lot of guides that you know, our industry use uh, like standard, they're not ISO, but they produce them, they're available they're on our website. But we're actually putting a committee together to look at what is happening in COP26 uh, and to start looking at this net zero agenda and to say where exactly can we help. And if you ask me, it comes in two forms. Part one is new build. 
how do we design and take carbon out of our design solution from the material we use to the construction process and to where we run the asset. So we are looking at that asset management and asset delivery. And we're also looking on the existing, where if you take in any Western society, you have a lot of you know, heating system available. You have a lot of energy being lost through the you know, house. How do you actually you know, take you know, the wasted of energy out of you know, the issue of properties? Uh, and you know, heating system that you're using, we change the system and looking at all that comes through. Then there's the issue about carbon capturing. How can we look at that from the industry perspective? We also look at you know, this design solution where we're actually doing a lot of work using material which require a lot of carbon that's going to come out of it. So we are looking at the various parts of asset development and asset management, and we come up with guide which we make available to our industry. We're already producing various guides. Thank you, Nelson. Very, very interesting. I mean, I definitely agree. It sounds to me like uh, consulting engineers are are indeed very well placed to um, uh, to, to helping clients achieve those you know environmental and sustainability goals. And I suppose it's a well entrenched view that consulting engineers are in a better position than say lawyers, for example, who are preparing contracts and aren't actually involved in the design or, or, or developing the scope of work. And so have you ever thought about incorporating incentives in, in the form of FIDIC contracts to, to encourage participants to be more environmentally minded or sensitive? Is that ever something you've ever thought about? Yeah. Well, Harry, it is interesting you raised that because we've just been having a conversation with the World Bank. Um, and I, I'm sure you do know the FIDIC contract document structure. You have your general condition, you have your particular condition. Uh, and, and the particular condition enable the client, and in this case, let's talk about the bank, opportunity for them to inject policies in their procurement process to enable green agenda to be built into that. Uh, and it's not just on green agenda, even on gender, you know, violent issue that has been talked about. And so, so I do believe that the way the contract is structured provides flexibility in the particular condition for the client to actually inject their policy, which will address the issue about net zero. I do know, for example, that the multilateral development bank, for sure, they've actually done that. They've put environmental policy into their contract, which they've adopted based on the Philip general condition by producing their own particular condition. And so that's taking the Philip particular condition and adding on their own special clauses, which they then can impose on any you know, borrower from them to say, if you are going to borrow money from us, here our agenda in the environmental area, and you must include this in the delivery of your project if you are going to borrow money. So if there is scope for improving what we have, Harriet, I'm sure we'll take it on board. One of the things we are doing now is look at our contract committees and sustainability development committee and said, just as we talked about, you know, golden principle, we said, can we look at principle of sustainability that we put as a guide for individual clients who we take the fitting contract document and said, I've got the standard particular condition. What are the menu that I can pull off from fitting that we can put in there so that at least we can inject that condition into our contract form? And that way, you got the green agenda built into the contract. You do not need to change general condition, but
but it's actually in the particular condition. And I can tell you the American, the Inter-American Development Bank has done that. The World Bank has done that. Uh, the EBRD have done that, European Bank for Development and Reconstruction. Uh, Islamic Development Bank has done that. African Development Bank has done that. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the new kid on the block, you know, with a 20 billion capitalized, they've just done that. And guess what? They all adopted the Philly 2017 suit. And they mm -hmm. are now creating that green agenda in their particular conditions so that wherever, wherever they're spending money, there is an element of the green agenda. And I think it's a good way to go forward. But we are always open to see any ideas that come from the industry on how we can improve the condition. And what we said, just to try and summarize, is our sustainability development group and our contract group are developing a suite of menu that can be bought on, given to different clients to say, here's general condition, here's the particular condition, here are the things you can consider to be built in your particular condition so that you can address the green agenda. Interesting. And, and is that something that would be available to uh, to project companies who are not using these MDBs and, you know, just using traditional project financing, for example, or not financing? You know, yeah, okay. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can tell you something. We have people like, uh, you know, IKEA who build, you know, stores all over the world and they have their own green agenda and they're using Philly contracts. Okay, so we have people like ExxonMobil, they operate around the world in more environmental sensitive issue, and they use it for the contract document, they have their own green agenda. So what we're looking at, you know, Harriet, is perhaps some of this private sector who are already very conscious on the next year agenda, they've got some template, we can learn from them. We don't always have all the solution. And actually, let me just pause for a minute. Felix is not about somebody sitting in Geneva coming up with the idea. Felix is about looking through all our members around the world and get the best practice and pull it together to make it a global standard. That's how Felix started. What you now know as Felix Contract started from UK. It was the old UK IC condition of contract 60 years ago. We took apart from UK and we took it to the international world. We got the best idea together and we pull it together to become what it is today, and we are constantly improving that. The same thing with all our policy. We take policy idea from all over the world, we pull it together to make it more meaningful, and we make that a document that becomes best practice. That's what we do. Thank you, Nelson. And now, just, just moving on uh, to, to another topic, which I'm sure is in everyone's mind, given the prevailing influence that COVID-19 has had, on each and every single one of us during the course of this year. I think I would be out of touch if I didn't ask you about the effects of that pandemic and what, what the effect it's had on FIDIC and, and your response in general to that. Uh, it's an interesting one. Let me just start by saying I, our condolences to all lives lost and to the families of those who lost people around the world. What has FIDIC done? Because we have members all over the world, we, we're not just looking about what happened in Geneva, we're looking about what's happening around the world. We had to stop, we, we had to convey a board meeting urgently to see what the implications are. We realized the business as usual is no longer business as usual, uh, it's a completely new business model altogether, we had to respond very quickly. And because our job really is to try and understand what's going on in different parts of the world and try and provide a solution, we convey you know, 18 webinars 
in the space of 10 weeks, 18 webinars, we started to look at, you know, what is the impact on our members in their countries? We brought all our MA together. We look at, you know, uh, issues happening to construction projects. What is the implication on construction project right now? New project, existing project, project coming towards the end. We start deep diving into what means for consultancy agreement, and that's a separate webinar. We then look at issue of force majeure. Uh, we, we dive into that. We brought people together to help us to debate that issue. We cover as much as communication, ADR, how do we resolve issue, and people's well-being. We address all the issues that you can think about within 18 webinars. And we had, if I can put it there, nearly 90 speakers from all over the world. Uh, 150 countries participated in that. Uh, we have over 9,000 people that attended that webinar within space of 10 weeks. We put all our webinars on YouTube. We have over 10,000 people that's watched it on webinar. And we brought the best of the best, and we kept it free to the rest of the world, anybody to listen to the webinar. Because the only way, Harry, that we can get message and advice the industry is to listen to expert opinion who can respond very quickly. In addition to that, as we go through that, we're developing guidance notes based on the outcome of that webinar of what it means, what people need. We produce one for consulting industry as a guide. What does it mean for your business, your staff, your resources, your cash flow? We did that. We look at specific issues to do with risk management on site. We produce a dedicated document on that. We also look at, you know, contract. We took contract apart. We said, you know, wherever you are in the contract, how does this, you know, how would it impact you? And we produce specific guide on, you know, different scenarios that may happen. And those scenarios is not exhaustive. We are still adding on to those scenarios. Uh, and we consulted contractor. We brought client together. And what we did, you know, over that period was trying to support the industry as best as we can with the best brain possible and produce documents that can help the industry to move forward. Having said that, I think, you know, one can look back and say, could we do more? Possibly, yes. But in view of the fact of social distancing lockdown, I mean, the whole of my office in Geneva was locked down because we're close to UN. We followed the UN policy. So UN shut down, we shut down, all staff working from home, and yet we pull 18 webinars together from home. Speakers, everybody together. You could turn around and say, Maybe nobody's going anywhere, uh, and therefore people are available. But actually, people are available, working. And one of the things we find out was productivity in the industry went through the roof. People are working harder, particularly in our space and, and in the professional sector, both your space as legal profession and in the consulting, they were working. Uh, in the contracting sector, there are restrictions in some countries. And as you probably know, I was on Crossrail. We had a policy as a government policy. And the same issue applying different parts of the world. My take on it really, Harry, uh, to just try and sum up, is that in the area of contracts for FIDI, uh, there's always a question, should we amend the FIDI contract? I think the FIDI contract has an exceptional situation built into it, and there is five steps of things that you need to test. It's not a straightforward first measure, because you need to think about jurisdiction, you need to think about what's happening in the government policy, before you can actually say a situation is a is pandemic, and yes, it is a pandemic, and is the automatically force measure, maybe different part of the world, we have different view. So if you're coming from Africa, where the impact is not so severe, they haven't stopped construction project. But if you come from the West, where the world is like melting down, you cannot go out, and government have to legislate that you close projects, 
it means different things. So the policy of the government, the regulatory issue that comes from government, all of that comes together. So we do believe that what we have within the contract that we have on the general condition is perfectly okay, but we are taking sanding arid from the industry to say, what other lesson can we learn? And is there scope for improvement in the way we define this sort of intervention? And how best can we resolve that? And most of the stuff we are really advocating to a lot of people and clients is please, please, don't jump into litigation. Find a way to resolve this through alternative dispute resolution. There is a DAB and DAAV, which is the dispute avoidance and adjudication board that is available to help people through the project. Under the 2017, you have a DAB, which means you have a standing dispute board. So I do believe that you know a lot has been done by FIDIC, but it's never enough. It's never enough. And we have to continue to do because we don't know when 7 billion people can be fully vaccinated. Uh, there are four, you know, vaccination coming through at different pace and different sort of, uh, you know, uh, guarantee or assurance. Our view is that it's gonna take us about two to three years before we can come out to some normality. And during that period, it's very important that Fidi continue to have his antenna out in such a way that we can find a good solution that is win-win. For some people we lose, some people we gain. There's a lot of lives that's been lost. We cannot bring them back. But those that is alive, we need to find a way to make sure that at least we bring the world back to normality, but it will be a different world. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you. Uh, now I'll just uh, hand over back to James, who, who will talk about the golden principles. Thanks, Harith. Um, Nelson, um, one of the um, more recent developments uh, that's coming out of FIDIC, um, alongside the FIDIC 17, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment, is this idea of the golden principles. And um, I think it's it, it's fairly commonly accepted that, um, and this, I guess, is quite flattering, but I guess quite irritating as well for, for you at, at FIDIC, is that the FIDIC form has become a, uh, a benchmark, a, a standard for different forms of construction contract, whether it be a, a classic building contract in the red book of design and build in the yellow or a turnkey PC model in the silver book. They're, they're, they're sort of taken as the benchmarks that, uh, for those forms of contract internationally, um, which means that people then start tinkering with them to try and, and try and make them fit the risk profile that their respective clients uh, require. My understanding is that golden principles are driven out of a frustration around that because obviously by fiddling with the risk allocation, you are effectively turning the turning away from what was considered by Philip to be a reasonable common sense approach to risk allocation. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about how, uh, you know, with that background, how you got to the point of focusing on. Okay. If I, I think the question from James is, you know, how are we implementing and how do we get to that point? Is that correct? I, I think your your introduction, James, said this in, in the sense that uh, uh, for those who are listening, they will know that it's the 1999 version of the Rainbow Switch. And we put the 20, 2017 document out, uh, and which means technically it's close to nearly 18, 20 years in between. Uh, and, and we only produce a new version of the document when we think uh, that there is a need to do so uh, because it's important that 
uh, we let things bed in, we learn from experience of the past, and we see what significant changes need to be put in place. Uh, and we try and canvas the industry on those changes that is absolutely important. Otherwise, there is no need to produce a new document. Uh, but you guys who are in legal profession, uh, the need to try and test things is very important. And it's not just tested on the construction, but actually on the after construction in litigation and precedent and all the issue and, and, and legal framework balance is very important. What came out of that particular exercise, James, was a clear recognition of the point you raised at the beginning of your introduction, that a lot of people abuse the contract uh, and they abuse the contract from the standpoint, not that they do it deliberately, uh, but they see it from the point of view that different clients have different risk appetite. And therefore, you know, you need to customize the risk appetite to individual client. And in so doing, sometimes if you have inexperienced people being given that task, they don't look at the consequential impact of making a change to one clause, what it means into the change of the clauses that goes through, particularly on the risk allocation. And if you understand that, you know, from the standpoint of the consulting engineer, they have to worry about their professional indemnity insurance. Okay, the contractor have to worry about their own issue about contract construction or insurance. Uh, the investor will look at the issue about their bond and they look at you know what insurance they put in. What we find out is that when you look at that profile of risk management, it was obvious that there are certain parts of the fitting standard contract that should at all costs come what may be retained without being you know tampered with. And the reason for that is very simple, that when you start messing about with the general condition, you change the balance of the risk allocation in the basic contract. And therefore, if you are not savvy in using that contract, you come into it and you get stumbled down the line because one part of the clause is being changed. That is the fundamental part of why we do that. And I can pick up some examples where people take off the you know, the dispute resolution clause, and sometimes they take the jurisdiction issue out of it, and sometimes they change all sorts of responsibility and they mess about with the document to the extent that the, the integrity of the document itself is being questioned. James, that is the basis of looking at those golden principles. The question you may ask is that, how is it being taken in the industry and people reacting very well? I always start with what I know for sure. Uh, the seven multilateral development banks who are doing nearly one trillion of investment, they all bought it, they like they, they, they like that. And they insist that all borrowers all over the world will take that on board. That's why they signed up to the Philip contract document. That they're absolutely, absolutely adamant about that. Uh, they, they like the, even though the dispute, you know, a, a resolution, you know, a clause in that area, and I think we've done very well to be able to persuade them. But going forward, my view is that it's been positively received in the industry. And we are talking about it and we are taking feedback. And we haven't had any negative feedback. In fact, the industry has been saying, this is a good idea because we now know these are the area that if you touch, it will change the balance of risk allocation. And therefore, it's much easier for us to price. If the client so wish to change those risk allocation, we can price it in. Yes, no, I, I think I think the golden principles are an interesting way. I mean, it may be the only way, really, realistically, that you can stop or make people pause for thought, I think perhaps is more 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 likely 
before they start tinkering with the risk allocation. I wanted to ask you a question about that. As a, as a disputes lawyer, um, do you think that uh, as a result of the way in which, particularly in the Middle East, uh, people have, have, have shifted and pushed risk far, further onto the contractor uh, by modifying a FIDIC, FIDIC form, do you think that has had, had a consequence of increasing the amount of disputes? I agree profoundly that you know the document as it stands is um, is a balanced risk allocation um, because people have tried and tested they know exactly they know the implication if there is issue precedent has been set as we call it under the common law and the interpretation of it and you've got example of what you can benchmark when there is an issue you know or it's a simple issue about definition of claims or whatever. all of that already been said um, do I think amend the contract increase the probability of dispute? Yes, and the reason for that is very simple. People come under the premise that we know the Finnish contract as a standalone, and, and they, at the bidding stage, you know, James, you know, like every entrepreneur, they just want to win the project. They don't spend a lot of time reading that. They just identify the few risks that are so visible to them, but the other ones they don't identify. And then once they work the project, they forget the contract and effectively go into construction. And then issue comes up, they think it's business as usual, but it isn't business as usual. And at that point, you have dispute coming through, and then you have to find a way to deal with it. Uh, so from my point of view, I think I always said, you know, uh, you, people get the consequences of what they play in. I started my career as a contractor. I was trained as a contractor. In fact, I remember in the early days, which is the bad days, the first thing they teach you is to see where the engineers made a mistake and make sure you can actually go for a claim as soon as you win the job. In answer to your question, the less modification, the better. And I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I think it's good for the industry, and it's all about you know what you know don't hurt. But once you go into a chartered territory, then you are buyers beware. And that would be my comment in that area. Well, it's probably a good, good chance for me to hand over to Harith, actually, who's, I think, just chomping at the bit to, to get involved, because uh, this, this is his area. Uh, editing and modifying FIDIC forms. So over and to you, Harrah. Just, just on that topic we were discussing, do, do, you, do you think, Nelson, the pressure on contractor profit margins and this drive by clients to achieve maximum risk transfer, do you, do you not think that causes a sort of toxic outcome, which is what's led us to the position with Carillion, for example, in the UK? Um, how much time have you got, Harriet? I, I was on BBC, I was on, I was a radio station at 4 a.m. in the morning when, you know, Corridor went bust. And that saddened me because I started my career with Tarnak, which became Corridor. Okay? It saddened me. Yes, in answer to you, which I think when company gets so big and you are driven by the shareholders and you have, you know, CEO and CFO being too close to each other, driven by the bonus, uh, don't think about the implication and you have a growth agenda which is not sustainable. That's the consequence of what you see in answer to your question. Uh, and I think, you know, we can spend a whole day on this debate. My view is, is that, you know, um, is our industry geared up for that sort of environment? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and, and I question, even in the consulting industry, where you have company now owing 60,000 and 80,000 and different geography, I think this is equally applicable but it's more transparent in the contracting industry. One, the margin is very low. 
Two, the risk is very high. Three, they have fragmented industry where you really can't actually pinpoint until the project is got to an end. Four, you have an issue of front-end payment where the client can actually pay money sitting in the account. You think you have false profit coming through, and then when you close out the project, you need to recover from that. So there's a lot of issues that goes in the contracting issue. And I think that you know the construction industry needs to be actually upfront. If it's a, an open book contract, and you agree what the profit margin is going to be, and you are sensible in the contractual format that you adopt, and you are transparent in approach, and your supply chain, then you take all the good prices, like you know, project bank accounts, and all those issues. If you can take that on board, we may be able to reduce that tension because a contractor that runs, you know, two, three percent profit, you only need to run into trouble on one project in a year. You screw, pardon my French. Okay. You do that for two years, you are further you know, in trouble. So it's very important that you know when we look at the margin in our business, then you have to look at that and then look at the risk and appetite that you have. And what I've seen is not just in UK, but all over the world, is major contractor continues to operate with a low profit margin, bad management or incapable or you know, inexperienced management people driven by the shareholders and ultimately called collapse of those companies to the detriment of the employee, to the detriment of the employer, and the detriment of the industry. I don't think it's good for the industry. So please don't put me on my soapbox. This is my topic. You know, I think, you know, we can spend a whole day on that. Uh, but in summary, I do believe that construction industry needs to come together to pay appropriate, you know, reward for the risk we are taking. Uh, contractor need to move from the two three percent business into a sustainable profit business. Client need to move from the idea of two percent three percent is sustainable because it's not sustainable. And and government department who is the biggest client need to work from the idea of compliance on the issue and actually pay reasonable reward for the risk that people is taking. I if I have my money and if I have a choice. <clears throat> whether I put it in the construction industry or I put it in the technology industry or I put it in the pharmaceutical industry, I know what, what I'm going to get. And the question that we really need to address that is if we want to incentivize young people to come to this profession, we need to make the profession attractive and sustainable and not going through the boom and the bust that we're going through. And I do believe it's not just purely in UK, it's all over the world. There's so many contractors that I know in Africa, they've gone bust. Morian Robert, massive contractor in South Africa, gone bust. You go through all the big construction companies in the UK that used to work overseas, they've all gone. None of them are working internationally. You know, most of them cannot take the risk and the margin that you get in the international market. It's not down to the consulting engineer. It comes down to pricing and it comes down to the culture of the industry. And I do strongly believe that that culture of the industry needs to change if it does not change, then you will get what we have. I say to people, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. So construction industry need to wake up and actually said, no, we are gonna go for this construction project. It's going to be 6% profit margin. I'll lay it on the table. I'll be transparent, I'll be efficient, and the client need to buy that. The question is, if I take that risk, am I entitled to that reward? I think it's a reasonable question. And unless we start asking that question, we're gonna be in trouble in the construction industry. But I do believe that Felix is advocating pay appropriate price and use the right form of contract and reward your supply chain accordingly and don't try to package risk to people who are not capable of managing that risk. Package the risk 
to people who have the bandwidth to manage the risk. Yeah, it's an ongoing problem in the industry. I mean, you you see it. I mean, it, it, it clearly generates work for disputes lawyers. Uh, that that's clear. But you do sometimes see the same patterns of behaviour, the same problems on projects every time that lead to disputes. And very often, it's the it starts with the procurement process and a sort of race to the bottom pricing approach, use of lump sums where perhaps and turnkey type risk allocation where perhaps a, a different risk allocation would be more appropriate, particularly on very high risk projects. One of the questions I was going to ask you about was um, obviously it's the pink book that um, has been specifically developed for the development banks. And when you look at that contract, it's a slightly modified form. I think uh, you, you know more than I would, certainly how I think would know, but it's not a silver book. It's not a yellow book. It's uh, it's a, a blend of different issues and, and, and a different risk allocations from, from those books. How did you reach that? And, and how did you reach a sort of consensus on how that pink book was going to be prepared and, and the risks that, that the investment bank or sort of development banks were going to take? Okay, James, let me just try and address that as quickly as possible. The pink book was a, a version of the red book. Okay, uh, so it's bells fundamentally on the red book. And when I was talking earlier about where you can look at, you know, the green agenda or you can look at the issue, it's exactly what the bank did. They took the red book uh, and they said they would like to have one or two clauses changing there. Fundamentally, all the bank signed up together. They will adopt that. We work with them to make sure we build that in. We look at the whole of risk allocation that is not on balance and we insert those changes into that. But more important, on the particular condition, which is where they brought in the bank policy, on environmental, on gender, on anti-slavery, you know, anti all those issues, they put it into that. And the bank signed to that, we produced that for them in 2004, which they all signed and adopted in 2005. That contract was 10 years agreement, uh, where they're able, and they had a copy of it, all the bank had a copy of it that they can download and use in all their projects. So, and they've been using that. Now that contract expired uh, in 2015, we extended it to 2018, and in 2017, we issued the new 2017 document. And what you have in 2017 document was fully adopted without any changes to the particular condition as published. So what we now have, all the seven banks, they've adopted the 2017 rainbow suite, plus the green book and all of them, the whole suite, before they adopted one document, which is just the pink book. But now the whole suite has been adopted by them, and effectively, what they are doing is the whole suite is being used by the bank and they develop their own particular condition. I'll tell you why, James, why they are doing it. The bank have a master particular condition which they share among themselves. All the banks meet, they call it HUBS, which is the head of procurement. They meet every two, two months and they share best practice among the bank. And what they've done, they produce their own particular condition which they want to use with all the fitting contract. And they've allowed individual banks to look at geography diversification and to enable them to produce theirs. So the pink book is still being used by some bank who have not completed the development of their particular condition. And the red book, sorry, the 2017 suite is equally being used uh, by the MDB. In fact, we are facing some MDB are facing out of the pink book into the red book pure with their new particular condition but some of them actually jumped straight into 2017. So the answer to that question is that the pink book was developed purposely 
to accommodate all the policy and all the consistency that the multilateral development bank wants and that is being used by most countries where they are recipient of fund or grant from those banks so that's where we stand on that um Harry, if you wanted to ask a question a little bit about Philip 17 Philip 99 and uh, and what have you well, I was just going to ask what kind of take up have you seen? It sounds like the the sounds to me like the use by the MDBs is probably a ve you perceive that you seem to perceive that as a vehicle for ensuring that the market starts to use for the 2017 or it's a, it's a good catalyst if you like because my experience the uptake has been quite slow so far uh, because people are quite entrenched with their views and quite used to FIDIC 1999 but perhaps with the uh, mandating of it by by the MDBs then that, that will change. Harriet, what you find that in any new document that comes into play, any contract needs to be tested. We're now talking about vaccination and we're looking at how many people is being tested and what is the efficacy you can get out of it um, and you could apply the same principle. People don't just jump into a new document immediately uh, we knew because the bank wants to see all the best practice that's come up since 1999 incorporated in 2017, which is what we've done, and we've done it quite right. And as a result of that, in fact, you know, we find out there's more, we've sold more of the 2017 document than we did on the 99 document, believe it or not. So it's been very, very high tech. Uh, it's high tech by projects funded by the banks, high tech by a lot of the private sectors who are developing projects in different parts of the world. Uh, and all of them, to some extent, you know, they answer the question that people tend to ask, are you going to tell us to stop using 1999 or to, and go to 2027? We've said, look, it depends on where you are in your journey. Uh, we've never killed any contract document. Uh, you know, that's not our practice. It's, it's good for that purpose and therefore it's used at that point. Uh, and we encourage people to migrate into that board. Some people are comfortable with using 1999. We continue to encourage them to use 1999. But what it does is if you use 1999, it doesn't take on board the feedback and best practice that is happening for nearly 20 years of using that. And that's what we've done to capture that in the 2017. So question, is it being sold? Yes, it's been sold. The offtake is high, very, very good. Uh, and how does that compare with other books relative? In fact, quicker and faster than the 1999 since it produced. Uh, so from that point of view, it's not the sales for us that really matter, it's getting best practice in the market. And that's what we're able to do. Okay, thank you very much, Nelson. I think we can uh, end the interview there. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Well, it's a pleasure to join you. Just to give you before I shut down, uh, we are looking at you know a number of new suite of contracts just for your record, the board has approved uh, that we need to see what we can produce in the West where the market is ready and sophisticated. So we've just commissioned the development of collaborative contracts, which you know will take us about a year, year and a half to develop. We are also looking to produce a PPP contract and also we're looking to produce an EPCM contract. Because we do believe that the way the market is going, if we get it right, then we start to have opportunities to have a foothold in the West market, where there is an increasing demand for alliance and collaborative, and projects are becoming so complex that you need an EPCM to deliver the project, or the issues to do with you know PPP, because you go to different parts of the world, it means different to different people. And we've been approached by the multilateral development bank 
get us a complete suite of a PPP contract so that we do not have to reinvent one in different jurisdictions all the time. Of course, you need to understand the legislative framework. The policy needs to go to support PPP, but we want to do something that at least give a template for the industry. So those three projects, we are not ready commissioned and we're working on it. And we are looking for the industry contribution into the development. And we look forward to launch that in due course. We are trying to make sure that we have a product that suits the needs of the market. We're not driven by the money. We're not driven by profit. We're driven by having best standard product in the market. So uh, look out for those new products. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. And, and I look forward to listening to your uh, outcome. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Nelson. It's been great to speak to you. Thank you for your time.